We're in uh, Luke 9. I'm going to ask you to do something that's really, really dangerous, all right? Are you up for it? Really significantly dangerous. It's so dangerous, in fact, in my opinion, uh, the enemy, Lucifer, marshals all the forces of hell that he can muster to prevent you from doing what I'm about to ask you to do. Are you ready for it? I want you to open up your Bibles. Open up your Bibles. And I want to ask you specifically to be found in Luke chapter 9. Oh, you need an open Bible in your life. I'm encouraging you to regularly open your Bible, and not just open it, obviously, right, but also to read it. And then if you want to get really, really dangerous, I want you to start reading it, thinking about it, and then, we've really got to buckle up on this one, begin obeying it by God's grace. Obedience to the Word of God is not in an effort to get His favor. We need a paradigm shift. We obey the Word of God because in Christ we've already, by grace, obtained his favor. Christianity is not works-based religion. This is what distinguishes the call of Christ from every other way of thinking in the world. Not do this in order to be approved, but because Christ has paid the penalty for your sin, you are approved, therefore now walk this way. Christianity is not behavior modification. Christianity is, however, belief modification that does result now, friends, in absolutely changed behavior. Do you know that you can't really change somebody by trying to change their behavior? Did you know that? Any of you like me and you've tried to change the way that you eat (laughs) or the way that you exercise? I'm really, really effective and good at making plans to change and then not so good at carrying out those plans. We're going to be the same way if we open up this book and try to do this if we try to do it apart from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of the living God that the Lord Jesus Christ promised us when he went back to heaven, he would send to us. There's nothing more disheartening than to try to obey the commands of Christ apart from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I want to say that on the front end because we're going to hear this morning some pretty serious and significant commands from Christ in the Gospel of Luke chapter 9. I was reading not long ago about Napoleon, the great military uh, leader in France of the 19th century. And he said when it comes to his commands, when it comes to his orders that he would give his subordinates, he had three rules. Be clear, be clear, and be clear. He's saying my commands, if they're going to be carried out, Napoleon is saying they have to be clear. I also read of General John Sedgwick during the Civil War. He always had a man on his staff of what he called limited intelligence. And the reason was this man of limited intelligence was to read the orders that he was giving to his subordinates and if he could understand them or not. Why? These generals are saying, my commands, they have to be clear. We're going to see here in Luke chapter 9 that Jesus is being very, very clear. But what we're finding as we study through the Gospel of Luke, the ninth chapter, the disciples have an agenda... And Jesus has an agenda, and what are we finding out? They're not the same agenda. The disciples have come to conclude, as Peter says in Luke chapter 9, that Jesus is the Christ. However, their understanding of the Christ, based on some pretty significant Old Testament prophecies of who the Christ would be, was when the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ arrived, he would be sort of like Alexander the Great, but only greater, He'd be a conquering king. He would march into Jerusalem and drive the Romans out. 
And with that concept in mind, some of the things that Jesus is doing is reinforcing that false understanding. Remember, in those days, uh, a conquering king, a military leader, was at the uh, whim of nature. And you could have be the greatest military strategist on the face of the planet. And if you take your army and going to charge into Jerusalem or somewhere, but a rainstorm comes up or a monsoon comes up, or if you're uh, uh, planning a, uh, uh, from the ocean in or from the Mediterranean Sea in, and you can't dictate the weather and what Jesus demonstrated. Oh, my friends, he can speak and the waves are calm. He can speak and nature obeys him. And then another significant hurdle any military uh, figure of that day would face is how do I keep a large army fed? Hey, good news. Jesus has just demonstrated in Luke chapter 9. What can he do? Take a few, few loaves of bread and a few fish and I can feed a large standing army. And here's Peter, James, and John thinking, I think we found the right guy. This is really a Messiah. He's demonstrated he could even raise the dead. Now, if you're a military conquering king, would that be helpful on the battlefield? Be able to s- touch somebody and somebody who's uh, died in battle can immediately come back to life. So they have this mentality in their mind that Jesus has come to be a military conquering king and hero. That gives context to some of these things that are going on. Look in Luke Luke chapter 9, verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. An argument arose among the disciples, the followers of Jesus, as which of them is the greatest. You know what they're arguing about? Well, sure, sure, he's going to be Alexander the Great, but who's going to be next in charge? Who's going to be kind of the the lieutenant right underneath him? That's what they're arguing about. But Jesus, verse 47, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives him who sent me, for he who is least among you is uh, always the one who is great. And then just flip over to verse 51. We're not going to study these verses again. We studied them last week and the preceding weeks. But just getting us in line with what we will study this morning. It says in verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now again, the disciples have in their mind, he's going to Jerusalem to drive the Romans out, to drive Pilate out, to drive the soldiers out, and we might take this thing all the way to Rome itself. He is going to Jerusalem, but his agenda is not their agenda. It it says he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? See, that's what they've got in their minds. We're going to wipe everybody out. We're going to conquer this whole place. The Samaritans themselves will be subservient to us. Fire coming down from heaven and consuming them. But he turned and rebuked them. Again, again uh, uh, I encouraged you last week that if you're a, a follower of Jesus, you'll often hear a statement made that so much harm has been done in the name of religion and people who in the name of Jesus have, have essentially done what these disciples are advocating, have conquered people and laid waste. And you know what? That criticism is actually historically, it is accurate. Those things have been done, but I, but I always bring someone who has that criticism to this text because what does Jesus say? He turned and rebuked them. Not everything done in the name of Jesus has been done to honor Jesus. He turns and rebukes them, and they went on to another village. And then we get to our text this morning, chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. And before we study this text, just a brief reminder of what we've been studying is what's in the heart of the disciples is what's 
we're prone to have in our hearts. And according to the Bible, it's the most dangerous substance in all the earth. You remember what it was from last week? What is it? It's pride. Pride, a simple definition of pride. Pride is doing what I want to do when I want to do it, putting myself before God and others. And you see the disciples doing that, don't you? An argument arose among them from who's the greatest. Pride is doing what I want to do when I want to do it, putting myself before God and others. And, and then we get to this text, and while we'll see even in uh, greater detail why pride is completely incompatible with the kingdom of God. It says in verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Well, let's pray together and then we'll study these three scenes in order. Father, we need your help. We have your word. It's written. We can read it. We can understand it. You've already blessed us so tremendously. But we, we by your grace, actually need more. We need the Holy Spirit to illuminate the scriptures for us so that we can understand them so that we can understand what these words written long ago have to do with our lives right here right now and i believe they have everything to do with us on this august morning of 2014 in rocky mount father we believe your word is alive and it's active that all scripture is profitable for reproof for rebuke for correction so that the man of god may be equipped for every good work so, Father, use your word this morning to equip us and train us where we need to be trained. And then, Father, grant us that we'd be humble enough to accept rebuke and, and correction where we need to be corrected. We pray that pride is not supreme in our hearts, but Christ is, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have three, uh, three scenes. The interesting thing is that on one of the scenes, a man comes to Jesus and says a pretty bold statement, I will follow you wherever you go. That's a great statement, isn't it? I got to tell you, as a pastor, if someone came to me and said, I'm ready to follow Jesus wherever he goes, that would be a tremendously wonderful thing to hear. But Jesus doesn't, doesn't respond in perhaps the way that we would think he would respond. There it says, as they were going along the road, someone, not told his name, not told who it is, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Now we would, we would presume that if someone came to Jesus and said, I'll follow you wherever you go, that Jesus' response would be, that's great, fantastic. Fill out some information and get in line. I mean, we're ready to go. But, but Jesus, the Bible says something very interesting of him. There's many places that it says this, and we won't look at each and every one of them. For example, we'll just look in the immediate context that we're studying here in Luke 9. Look over here in verse 47. Luke 9, 47, back when the disciples are arguing among themselves, interesting things said about Jesus. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts took a child and put him by his side. And when we get over here to this scene and we see this man say something and we hear Jesus' response, you know what we can conclude? This man said one thing 
but his heart indicated quite another. So what is it about this man that Jesus concluded he wasn't quite ready to follow him? Well, his response gives us an indication. When you decide to follow Jesus, you have to prepare for some hardship. If you look at what Jesus is saying, we can conclude, in essence, what Jesus means is following me can be really uncomfortable. Foxes have holes, and even birds of the nest, birds of the air rather, have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, what is, what is he getting at? Well, in those days, you know, there was no Holiday Inn Express with a nice little continental breakfast that's thrown in for free. There's no, there's no comfort in. As you traveled along the road, they're, they're not hotels and motels. What you were depending on was someone would be gracious enough, kind enough to open their home for you to stay in. So Jesus right here in this text we're studying, he's heading to Jerusalem. I mean, it's a long, tough journey. And there's no hotel. And so at the end of the day, sometimes you'd enter a village and you would be depending on their hospitality. Now, what just happened in Samaritan village? Did you see it? What just happened? They entered a Samaritan village. It says it right here. Uh, verse uh, 51. Uh, 52, he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. What's this getting at? I'm sending some people on ahead and they're going to uh, fill everybody out and find a place that we can lay our head tonight that we can rest tonight. But what happened? But the people did not receive him. What's this saying? Slam the door in his face. You can't stay here. You're not welcome here. You're not going to stay under my roof. Isn't that interesting? That's how it began for Jesus, isn't it? All the way back in Bethlehem. Joseph and Mary looking for somewhere to stay, looking for some hospitality. And what were they told? There's no room for you in the inn. You got to go out to, to the manger. And the Lord Jesus, when he was born, what do they do? They laid him in a manger. Why? Because there was, you know the verse, it's not just a nice pretty thing to put on a Christmas card. Because there was no room for them in the inn. What's he saying? They weren't received. And now here he is in this public ministry. He enters a Samaritan village. Can you imagine this? The king of kings who's humbled himself. So they don't see him for who he really is. The king of kings, the creator of the universe has come to their village and they've shut the door, locked the door. You're not entering. You don't get to come here. That's what he's telling this man. Hey, the son of man. Before we race past this, I want you to think about what's being said. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus Christ came to the earth. He humbled himself, took on the form of a servant, became obedient to death, as Philippians 2 says. And he goes to places and he's not welcomed. He's not wanted. You remember when he cast out the demoniac at Legion? What did the villagers do? They begged him to leave. Get out of here. And then even when he's crucified, what, he's got to borrow a tomb to be laid in. Good news is he wasn't going to use it very long, just needed it three days, and he'd be done with it forever. We are trained in our culture to seek our own comfort, aren't we? What Jesus is telling this man, and this is a bold, brash man, he comes, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. And, and Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. This is an uncomfortable journey. There are going to be times I don't have anywhere to lay my head. And not just about physical rest. There are going to be times where you enter a whole village and they don't want anything to do with you. They don't want to talk to you. They don't want to speak to you. It's going to be a hostile environment. We, we want to insulate our lives and avoid all risk and all danger and anything that would ever be remotely considered uncomfortable. But Jesus 
basically tells this person he's not up to following him because his mentality is, I still want to be comfortable. No one who commits himself or herself to following Christ is signing up for a life of ease. And we've got we, we to reckon with this truth a little bit. If your Christianity has brought absolutely no discomfort to your life, my friend, something is wrong. If we follow Christ, it's going to involve the discomfort of being out of step with the modern culture, the discomfort of being disliked, and even having times where you don't have anywhere to lay your head. Have you ever heard of the sleep number bed? Have you ever heard of the sleep number bed? It's a pretty interesting uh, invention. The sleep number bed is a bed that has an adjustable mattress. You got a little remote control, and I only know this because I once stayed in a hotel that had a sleep number bed. In fact, that was sort of the selling point when we when we were going to check in. I didn't know that this was the case. He said, "Hey, we just got the person at the counter. We just got sleep number beds," and he announced it as if it were you know the gospel good news itself. And so I said, "Well, well, well great. That's that's great." And so go into the hotel room, and then uh, it's a queen size bed. And this sleep number bed was actually adjustable to the point that one side of the bed could be adjusted one way, and another side of the bed could be adjusted another. And I had the whole queen bed to myself. And so I began, I laid down and I began to adjust the sleep number bed. The higher up is on a scale of 0 to 100. If you ever find yourself in this situation, the the closer to 100 you get, the firmer the mattress. The closer down to 0 you get, the softer the mattress. So I thought a happy medium is obviously 50. So I put it on 50. And then I was a little bit like Goldilocks. A little too firm, a little too soft. And and, and I started to crank it up. and, and, And then this is a little bit embarrassing to admit. But I, I began to lay diagonally across the bed, and I had a remote in both hands. You know, you know I, what I learned about myself is when it comes to the sleep number bed, my, uh, my upper body prefers one number, and then, then, then my lower body, I, 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 you know, my back I wanted the firm, and then on my legs I wanted the, the soft. It's strange, I know, but, but man, and, 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 and I realized I probably fiddled with that thing for an hour, an hour and a half. And, and I wasn't, now, what's the bed designed for? For, re- for sleep, for rest. This is one of the worst nights of sleep of my life. <laughs> you know why? I'd roll over and I'd well, maybe a little firmer. Roll back over, maybe a little soft. It got the remotes and, and then it got to dark and I couldn't see which was which. And I, it, All night long trying to find just the right spot. You know what I got up the next day and I thought, that's exactly how we exist in the world. It's exactly what we do in life. In pursuit of rest and satisfaction and, 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 and comfort, we're constantly making adjustments. Well, a little bit more of this and a little bit more of that and a little bit more here and a little bit more there. And what we find over time is we're not resting at all. We're not getting any true rest. And I don't, I'm not talking about just a good night's sleep. I'm talking about the soul. I'm talking about, I'm talking about your heart. You remember what Jesus said? Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden. We don't need a sleep number bed. We need a savior. We, we can't figure this out on our own. And all the places we look for comfort actually offer no rest. One of the best things God can do for us is open our eyes to, here's where I'm looking for rest. Here's where I'm, it's in a relationship or it's in a habit or it's in a sinful pleasure or it's in my job or it's in money. And, and what God can do that's glorious is just turn the light on and, and us to see this whole pursuit we're doing to try to get comfortable. Hey, you'll never be comfortable in the world. 
because the world's fallen. In fact, the Bible says, you want to talk about mission impossible, the Bible says that God has subjected the creation to futility. That's what he said about this creation. So if you seek to find comfort in the world, here's what the Bible says in 1 John chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world for all, how much? All that's in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of possessions is passing away. But we keep wanting to go to that bed and we think we can just find just the right number. And it won't happen. That's what Jesus is telling this man. I'll follow you wherever you go as he drags his sleep number bed with him. And Jesus said, hey, foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I'll tell you this. If you'll exchange the empty pursuit of finding rest in this life, you'll find that you are given what's real rest coming for us in eternity. Amen? We are going to a place, not of glorious sleep number beds, but to the presence of the Lord Jesus himself. The great irony is the search for comfort in the world is the most restless pursuit possible. Because ultimately, there's no rest to be found except in Christ. That's why the scripture says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise. Well, are you willing to follow Jesus? Let's get a little life application here. Are you willing to follow Jesus into the hard places? And can I just tell you, as time goes on and we progress as a culture or degress as a culture, however you might want to articulate that, I I believe upholding this word is true, following Christ is going to get increasingly uncomfortable. Are you still looking for comfort in what others think of you in securing your own reputation? Have to leave that pursuit behind. Second scene is the first scene was someone came up to Jesus. The second scene, Jesus comes up to somebody. To another, he said, Follow me. It's the very same call he had given to the disciples earlier in the Gospels. To another, he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. So, what's going on here? This seems like a pretty reasonable request. I'm going to follow you, but first, Go and bury my father. Or a couple things that are, that are uh, alarming and that we need to pay attention to is that Jesus gives this call to follow me. So I want you to hold your spot there in Luke and go back two books in the Bible to Matthew chapter 5. And you're going to see the, um, excuse me, it should be Matthew 4. And we're going to see the very same call from Jesus. And then there's going to be a word here that I want you to pay really special attention too. Okay, so Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. While he was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and their father and followed him. Did you see the word? You saw it twice. Did you see it? Immediately. Immediately. Now we go over here to Luke 9 and Jesus says the same call, follow me, and this time you don't see the word immediately, do you? This time you see a man say, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus' response seems 
seems at first reading a little bit insensitive. He says, uh, verse 60, Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So what's going on here? I think in Luke's account, the man is doing something very common in that culture. It's a different culture from ours, so it needs a little bit of explanation. The man, when he says, let me first go and bury my father, and then, uh, and, and then I'll follow you is essentially what he says. What he's saying is, in, in that culture in those days, inheritance was passed on at the time of death. So when a father passes away, he leaves income, he leaves provision, he leaves money for, uh, for, his, for his child. And so what's going on here is this guy's saying, there will be a more convenient time for me to follow you. As a matter of fact, it's probably not too, too, too much of a stretch to, to, to conclude that maybe this man overheard Jesus give the whole foxes have holes speech and birds of the nest have air speech. He heard that little interaction and he concluded, well, maybe when I have a little bit more money, I can afford to find myself somewhere to lay down at night and sleep. He, he's saying, I'm going to follow you, Jesus after I get a little income from my father. That, that's how that culture works. That's, that's why, for example, the parable of the prodigal son, if you remember this, the younger son said to his father, Father, give me the portion of the inheritance that's coming to me when you die, but I don't want to wait for you to die. I want it now, right? That's how, that's how, that's how the inheritance was passed down. And so what this man is saying is, okay, the, the call to follow you is, is pretty intriguing Uh, But let me get a few things together here. Let me get some circumstances worked out. Let me handle a little business on my end, and then there'll come a time when it's easier for me to follow you. So in that sort of transaction, who's dictating the terms? He's saying once my father passes away, I'll, I'll have a little bit of a little bit of money, a little bit of a security blank, a little bit of a plan B. He's telling Jesus it will be more convenient for him to follow him once he has a little bit of a safety net. Now, how do you think Jesus feels about safety nets? When we seek to obey like that on our terms and with our conditions, who are we suggesting is actually in charge? We are. And I'm going to follow you, Jesus, as long as I first. Now, here's a word that this man tells Jesus that makes him completely disqualified for following Jesus. Did you see it? Lord, let me first do something other than following you. Do we know what the word Lord means? This man uses the word Lord, but by his own statement, he reveals that he doesn't know the definition of the word. You know, there's only one word that can be used with the word Lord, if you know what the word Lord means. You know what it is? Yes. Yes, Lord. Come follow me. Immediately left his nets. Oh, and by the way, if you read Matthew, Matthew's account, left the nets and the Father. That's what it said of James and John, right? James and John, the sons of Zebedee, left Zebedee and began to follow the Lord Jesus. Have you attached an if or a win to following Jesus? In your own heart now, have you attached that word if? I'm going to really get serious about following Jesus when I get a little bit older. I'm still young, and I've got a few things I want to do. I'm going to get serious about it when, I, when, I'm, when I'm older. I'm going to get serious about following Jesus when I've saved up a little bit more money. I'm going to get serious about following Jesus when the children are grown. And I can just get a good night's sleep. If you're not 
careful, you just hear me for just a moment, if you're not careful, all of your I wills are going to turn into I should haves. You know what I'm saying? If you're not careful, you're going to spend first half of your life saying, I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to get around to the I will, I will, I will, I will. And then you're going to spend the second half of your life saying, well, I should have, and I should have, I should have obeyed there. I should have obeyed there, and I should have obeyed there. Do you know what the best day to obey is? Today. <laughs> Yesterday and tomorrow, those are the devil's days. He'll, he'll, he'll convince you to live in one of those days, either in the past or in the future. What's the day of salvation according to the scripture? It's today. There are some of us in the room that God's calling to obedience. Obedience in a relationship, obedience to share the gospel with someone, obedience to put away a known sin, but we keep delaying. He's come to us and says, follow me, and I'll say, I will win. But first, let me go. Now, if you're going to follow Jesus, nothing else can be first. And we got a, a little bit other di- uh, you know, paradigm shift it, is Jesus isn't really even asking to be number one on the list. Jesus is demanding to be the list. Not number one, Jesus, and then all these other things. He's the list. He's it. That's what it means to, to follow him. Do you know another word for delayed obedience? You know what another word for delayed obedience is? Disobedience. <laughs> delayed obedience. Is, we as humans in our fallen nature like to put little qualifiers on, on things. I'm going to obey. It's just not going to be now. That, that's, that's disobedience. I mean, when my, when my children, if I ask them to go brush their teeth and they haven't done it, you know what? They've always, they've always got an excuse. They've always got, I got distracted with this. What, what, what have they simply done? They've disobeyed. You want me to give you a simple, simple, simple definition for obedience? Obedience is doing what I'm told, when I'm told, with a good attitude. That's the kind of obedience that honors the Lord Jesus. Here's a man who said, Jesus said to him, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Let me first go when my father passes away. And then Jesus says, let's look at this real fast. Jesus says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, what's what's Jesus saying here? If, If I can add a little word that might clarify his meaning. Jesus says, leave the spiritually dead to bury the physically dead. That's what he's saying. He's saying your responsibility is to the living. Now, as a pastor, I have a pretty frequent opportunity to, to preach at funerals. And there is no funeral that I have ever preached or ever will preach that the message is directed to the person who's passed away. Why? They can't respond. They can't obey. The Bible says it is appointed for a man once to die and then the judgment. That little beating heart you've got, that's all that separates us from standing before the Lord. And you can go through your whole life saying, well, no, it's not that big a deal. Eternity, no, I'm not going to give much thought to it. I'm going to procrastinate. You know, I live in a culture where most people don't even believe in heaven and hell. So why... Just because most people believe something doesn't mean it's true. What does the Word of God say? The Word of God says, it's appointed for me once to die, and then, and then the judgment. Jesus says, leave the dead to bury the dead. You're, you're called to a ministry of the living. You, you go and proclaim the gospel to people who are alive, who can respond. And don't give your life over to what we might call dead bones ministry. Once a person's dead, there's nothing more you can do. 
This is another call not to love the world. Why? Because the world itself is dying. Its riches, its possessions, what it calls important, all of those things are passing away. If I can give you a word, just one word uh, on what Jesus is getting at, is there's an urgency to the matter of gospel proclamation. There's an urgency to the call of Christ. It cannot be delayed. It cannot be put off. So, to apply it to, our, to your life, in, in your life right now, are you delaying something you know you should do and rationalizing in your mind why you're not doing it when the Lord told you to, to do it? Is there a sin the Holy Spirit has convicted you of, but you keep putting it off, saying, one day I'll really put this away? Is there an act of obedience? Maybe last week I had a few conversations with people and we talked about the manner of pride and pride's doing what I want to do when I want to do it, putting myself before God and others, that every broken relationship at, at its core has been an issue of pride. I had several people come and talk to me and say, God's put it on my heart to try to restore this relationship. And maybe God said the same thing to you, but you're saying, ah, I'm going to put it off. Maybe it's something as simple as daily Bible reading or a devoted prayer life and you've been putting it off. Maybe you felt encouraged to open God's word and memorize the scripture. You said, I'll do that once the summer is over. Have you, have you noticed this? We're always, always planning two months out. <laughs> now, right, now is, now right now is when the summer's over. I mean, when the summer's over, I've got, I mean, life kind of gets back to our normal schedule. Then we'll, And then, then what's going to happen? Fall's going to come. And so, well, well, once we kind of get settled into the routine of fall, and, and, then, I'll go, and, then, and then it'll be, well, you know, Christmas is around the corner. Christmas is around. And I kind of, once we get settled from the, oh, you know what's a good time to start things? The new year. We'll, we'll wait till the new year comes in. I'll get on a Bible reading plan or I'm going to share the gospel. Well, the, and then the new year comes, you know, maybe when it warms up a little bit, maybe when we hit the spring, it'll, it'll be easier and, and the life will slow down. And, and then you hit to the spring and you, and you think, well, once school's out and, and we're not quite, and you see what, see what I'm saying? <laughs> And then you hit the summer, and then you're right back where you started. Once the summer's over, then. Do you see what I'm saying? Let me first, let me first, let me first, by God's grace, maybe he'll reveal to us all this morning some things that we're saying, first let me do this. Last thing, third scene, Luke 9, 61. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. Here come these words again. But let me first say farewell to those at my home seem to be an unreasonable request, does it? And Jesus said to him, okay, that's fine, go and do that. That's not what he says. No one, if you got an open Bible, are you looking at it? No one, no exceptions. Because the other thing we think in our pride is we're the exception to the rule, right? Speed limits for everybody else, they're just not as good a driver as me, right? That's kind of what we think. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back as fit for the kingdom of God. Again, we have someone coming with an intention, a good intention of following Jesus. There's just one small thing they want to do first. There was a saying in that culture that you could not plow a straight row while looking backwards, right? And this is before John Deere and all those sorts of things. So you'd plow a field really by the sweat of your own brow and you'd get that plow out. But you know, you can't plow a straight line while you're looking back, right? That's what, and, and Jesus picks up on that saying. No one who puts his, his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Following Jesus means not looking back. Those who pine after what they've left behind, 
who are always remembering old comforts of home and are always looking in the rearview mirror are not fit for the kingdom of God. I'm basing that on the words of Jesus. Over 100 years ago in 1904, William Borden was the heir of a wealthy Chicago family. At the age of 18, he traveled around the world. Then he went on to Yale University and Princeton Seminary where he committed his life to share the gospel to the Muslims of China. Before he left, he gave away much of his inheritance, equal in our terms today of about $20 million, and set out for China. And then in 1913, at the age of 26, he contracted cerebral meningitis when he was in Cairo, Egypt. As he lay dying, he scribbled a note, barely had the strength to write, and here's what the note said. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. There's two primary stumbling blocks to following Jesus that we see here. Those two stumbling blocks are comfort and convenience. And I, and I don't know, are, can you, do you know of two things that are more esteemed in our culture than those two things? Comfort and convenience. We, we almost think it's our divine right to have those things. Uh, I, w- I was traveling home uh, yesterday on I-95, and the traffic started to get a little backed up. And you know what? I mean, my, my wife sat right beside me, so she'll, I can't say otherwise. I got a little bit agitated. My schedule was interrupted. I had already planned ahead what I was going to eat, where I was going to eat. And, these, and it's one of those, you know, where it's, what's frustrating to me is, there's no explanation for the traffic. You know, just keep stopping, and there's no, there's no evidence of why. We want comfort, and we want convenience. We'll follow Jesus just as long as we can follow him on our terms. We'll, we'll follow Jesus just as long as we get to set the agenda. We'll follow Jesus just as long as we get to set the pace. We'll follow Jesus just as long as he fits into my box of what I say following Jesus is all about. The first man here seeks comfort, and Jesus says there's going to be hardship. The second man sought convenience, and Jesus says the the mission is urgent. The third man sought a combination of the two, and Jesus says the mission requires focus. Convenience and comfort, or hardship, urgency, and focus. If I lay those two things out before us today, and you take them, which is your life being invested in? More comfort and more convenience, or the urgent hardship and focus of following Jesus. Now, he does not promise comfort. He does not guarantee convenience. But can I tell you a few things that he does promise? Would it be helpful to you to hear a few things that he does guarantee? Well, for one, true rest. You ever look for real rest, a true rest? He says you can be free and liberated from all you're trying to obtain, but by my grace I'm offering you. You want, you, want to, you want to know what else he offers? Eternally forgiven sins. Pretty, pretty good offer, isn't it? He set his face to go to Jerusalem, not to drive out the Romans. He set his face to go to Jerusalem to defeat a far superior enemy called death and the grave. It seems to me there's an issue here we need to carefully consider. If I was going to boil down all these things to one truth, I want to share it with you by way of illustration. 
It reminds me of a story one of my favorite preachers who I often quote to you, Adrian Rogers, used to often tell. In a discussion between Adrian Rogers, shortly after the fall of the Soviet Union, when the Eastern European nations were, for the first time in generations, opened up to someone like Adrian Rogers coming to proclaim the Bible and the gospel, he traveled to Romania, and there he met a man named Joseph Zahn. And Joseph Zahn was a revered Romanian pastor who survived years of persecution and exile under communist rule. And as they traveled around preaching together, they had a conversation, Adrian Rogers and Joseph Zahn. And the subject of American Christianity came up. Adrian Rogers had been talking about what God was doing in Romania, and then the conversation shifted. And Joseph Zahn, Adrian Rogers said, was very hesitant to talk about the matter of American Christianity, and he said for fear of offending Adrian Rogers. And finally, after Adrian Rogers had kind of encouraged him to share what he really felt about American Christianity, Zahn replied, okay, here's what I think. American Christians have exchanged one word for another word. In other words, he's saying there was a word that American Christians previously had used that they stopped using. And Joseph Zahn's point was, whenever you stop using one word, you replace it with another word. And so Adrian Rogers said, okay, what what is the word that we stopped using? And Joseph Zahn said, you no longer use the word surrender. You stop talking about surrender. And Adrian Rogers said, okay, what word did we replace it with? Joseph Zahn said, you replaced it with commitment. And Adrian Rogers said he flew home and he could not get that thought out of his mind. We stopped saying surrender to Christ. We started saying commit to Christ. And I, and I, and I think this paragraph we're studying right here, right now, clearly contrasts surrender with commitment. The word commitment, in essence, is not a biblical concept. That's why I think Joseph Zahn is on to something. It's more or less the word Christians began using in the 1960s. And then preachers began to use the word. Today, people are asked to make a commitment to follow Christ to commit to the mission field, to commit to give financially, to commit to pray for a certain issue. The word commit means a promised devotion, a promised pledge or dedication to somebody or something, to be committed to somebody. It does involve a loophole, though. The loophole with commitment is we can still decide at a later time to no longer be committed The decision still lies with us. We're still in control. It's a humanistic concept that's bled over into a Christian understanding. Scripture doesn't speak of commitment. Scripture speaks of surrender. The definition of surrender is to give up possession of something, to relinquish possession or control of something. It's unconditional. It's the abandonment of my rights. It's an act of submission to authority, capitulation, renunciation. Those are all fine words to hand over, to give up the right to an act of declaring defeat at the hand of an opponent. If you're in battle and you surrender, you know the difference. You're not committing, you're surrendering. 
what you do when you surrender, you just stand there. This, this is the universal sign of surrender. That's why I think it's perfectly fine if you follow the Lord Jesus and you sing to him, you pray to him. This is a perfectly fine posture to use. You know why? You say, I surrender. I surrender. I don't know what the universal posture of commitment would be, but I think it's something like this. <laughs> Let me think about this. These three men here, do you know what? They were willing to commit to Jesus. They were willing to commit. In so far as we can do a few things first. And Jesus wasn't asking for commitment. He wasn't asking them. And he's not asking us. Jesus demands complete surrender. And oh, by the way. <laughs> he's the one who surrendered his life so that your eternal life could be purchased. Jesus is not going to Jerusalem because he's committed. Jesus is going to Jerusalem because he's surrendered to the will of the Father. Do you understand the difference? When Jesus comes back, I just have to tell you, <laughs> when Jesus comes back to welcome his own, he's coming back, my friends, for those who've surrendered to him not necessarily those who've just committed. In fact, he gives a pretty clear warning about this in Matthew 5. He says, on that day, many will come to me saying, Lord, Lord, did we not do, and they give a list of things, did we not preach in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Their whole speech is about what they have done. And that's what the committed always talk about. Here's what I'm, I'm committed to do. I'm com- I'll just tell you this. Here's a way that you can gauge. If when you stand before the Lord, your speech that you work up in your mind is, look at what I did. You're in trouble, my friends. <laughs> i just tell you, biblically, you're on dangerous ground. It's appointed for a man to die and then wants the judgment. You're going to stand before the Lord and say, well, I was better than most. I was committed. I mean, I gave some and I went to church pretty frequently and I did, you know, I did some things. We'll stand before him. And the only thing we'll have to boast in, the only thing that is our defense, is not what we have done, but what Christ has done on our behalf. My only hope is, <laughs> I am a wretched sinner. I've fallen short of your glory, O oh God. But Jesus, that's my testimony. But Jesus, even when I was a sinner, he stood in my place. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who's still at work among the sons of disobedience. But God, being rich in mercy, even when we were dead, made us alive together with him and has seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us who believe for it's by grace you have been saved through faith. It's the gift of God. It is not by work so that no one may boast. That's what... God's word says, surrender is unconditional. Here are a list of people who said, I'll follow you if you meet these conditions. In this passage we've studied, we have three people who offer to commit to Jesus. And he tells them, no, you must surrender. Surrender means you don't broker a deal. You give this, I'll give that. Father first. Say goodbye. This surrender means you simply obey. 
Now, we're about to have a time of invitation. When we have a time of invitation, it's always in response to what we've studied in the Word. My question is pretty simple this morning. Have you ever surrendered to Jesus? Have you ever surrendered to the one who died for you, who gave his life? He doesn't walk among us saying, will you commit to me on some conditions and terms? The question is, have you ever laid down your life? Any man come after me. Does the Bible say, if any man come after me, he must commit himself. If any man come after me, he must deny himself, take up his own cross, and follow me. We've seen the contrast between a group of people, three in particular, that were looking for a measure of convenience and a measure of comfort in their life. Jesus responds to them by giving the demands that there's hardship and there's focus. But the best word is when Jesus says, follow me. We get to follow Jesus. He's the one we surrender to. Well, let's stand together. We're going to pray together. Then we're going to sing together. And maybe the Holy Spirit of God would use these few moments of response. I want you to, I want you to bow your heads. Already, already it's happening. I know it's happening because I'm the same way sometimes. Already it's what are we going to do for lunch? What do we got this week? What do we got? What do we got? What do we got? What do we got? Before all these other things seek to be first, would you take a moment and carefully consider the implications of Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62? No man who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You're looking back, looking for comfort, looking for convenience, looking for Jesus to have your agenda and build your kingdom. He's invited you to surrender to something much greater. That's his kingdom. His will, His purpose, His cross, His death, His burial, His resurrection, His eternal home. It's the inheritance of the surrendered. So Father, I pray right now in Jesus' name, as we sing, as we respond, these are sober words that we consider from the Scripture. These are not lighthearted, trivial matters with shallow implications we talk about today. These are eternal things. These are serious things. That's why your word says, be sober-minded and watchful, particularly about how we follow you. Father, help us to consider these things biblically, that your Holy Spirit would use the word of God to teach us the truth of God, and then, by your grace, we joyfully obey. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.